Welcome to Behind Startup Lines with me, Phil Guest. My guest today is James Pringle, VC investor at Portfolio Ventures, a fund that backs fintech, insurtech, SaaS, and enterprise software businesses. James takes us behind the scenes as an investor and how he and the Portfolio Ventures team pick the businesses to back. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with James, and as I'm sure you will too. Here's what he had to say. James, welcome to Behind Startup Lines today. Thank you so much for having me, Phil. It's great to be on the show. This has been a podcast exploring what it takes to build the commercial side of businesses. And a lot of the people I've spoken to so far have been founders that have been struggling with that go-to-market, that execution, making their first hires, winning their first customers. But you have a really unique perspective on that as an investor. I think this is a very different episode for us to be able to dive into really what's going on within the investment markets at the moment. It's July 2023. We've been through a pretty tough six months plus. Funding has significantly changed in that period from what it was in the last 15 years. So I'm not going to have a better opportunity than to quiz a venture capitalist about really what's happening in the market. But I also would love you to talk about what you've seen in the businesses that Portfolio Ventures is backing, which is good behavior, bad behavior. I mean, give us the good, bad and ugly. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I mean, we invest from pre-seed up to series A. So all the way from two people with maybe an early product and very much doing founder-led sales to companies that now have quite large sales teams will be selling in multiple territories, multiple millions of annual revenue, and everything in between. So yeah, hopefully we can provide some good perspective. I'd say good is often at the stage we're investing, we quite like founders being involved in sales. Hiring a head of sales too early is often not super successful. There's still so much that needs to be worked out from a product perspective and a client understanding perspective. And founders, hopefully, are pretty knowledgeable about the space they're in as well. So they put on a very professional, insightful and interesting viewpoint when speaking to customers about how they might want to change or improve a certain industry. So I'd say founder-led sales at the beginning is generally pretty good practice. Hiring salespeople, I have seen quite a few mistakes around hiring the first salesperson. I think it usually helps to have a very experienced salesperson almost acts like a consultant and also help hire. So another person involved in the process, not just the founder. So putting a process in place that is working and then finding the right person to take that process on and add to it as well. And often it's attitude over experience for that hire, but you can get the experience in through a consultant or one of your board members or someone like that. And then on the bad side, I guess, just being too spammy, not being targeted enough, not qualifying leads as well as you should. I was recently in a board meeting where we were talking about the medic qualification process, which I can't remember what each letter stands for, but it was a very thorough way of reviewing a potential customer and making sure you were properly qualifying them. Just that simple process, bringing that in has helped massively to focus the sales team. So yeah, there's lots of you know good practice, lots of bad practice, but hopefully I've covered a couple of examples there. 
Well, there's a lot that we're going to unpack in this conversation. So I'm looking at diving a bit deeper into each of those. But before we do, James, tell us a bit about you and your journey, how you came to be with Portfolio Ventures and what makes this area of work so interesting for you? Yeah, sure. So I was quite lucky that when I was at university, I picked the tech industry as something I wanted to go into. So I kind of had a view of where I wanted to go and certainly the space I wanted to work in. So after university, I just sort of leapt headfirst into the first role I could find with a startup and did sales roles really for two or three years. As part of that, they were very small companies. So as part of that, I was involved in some products, some marketing, some growth. I got a lot of experience across different areas of the business, probably everything apart from engineering, really. And that was great. But it was also a school of hard knocks because these were small companies that most of them didn't have product market fit. We were being bashed around as salespeople, learning the hard way. And that was probably a good thing in hindsight for me personally, but not a particularly successful early start to the career. And then in 2015, I founded my own business, which was a SaaS company. And we did raise money. We were VC backed and we started generating some okay revenue, but quite quickly realized we weren't going to be a unicorn. And so decided not to raise a series A and we scaled the business back and we sold some of our technology in a deal that didn't make anyone any money, but was the right thing to do. And so then from there, I started in angel investing, very small amounts. That then led to me launching a VC fund with two other partners. I was there for fund one, decided to leave. And then I joined Portfolio Ventures about 18 months ago. So I've had a sort of fairly unconventional route into venture. You know, a lot of people come from Goldman or McKinsey or whatever, but I've taken the kind of hard route through being on the operator side and experiencing a lot of yeah, different companies and different business models and and not always you know having stuff that is easy to sell but yeah hopefully has given me actually quite a lot of experience that I can draw on which helps the founders that we end up investing in. You're pretty rare then that you've been in there you've been on the front line you know what it's like you've taken those knocks is that a problem in investment in Europe? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of different profiles of investors. You kind of need the networker, the analyst, the fundraiser, the operator. It depends, really. And I think all funds need people that fit those profiles. And within that mix, they also can benefit from having the kind of career professional investors and then the more entrepreneurial type of people that have maybe got the battle scars from doing their own businesses there's a healthy balance. And I think founders definitely like it. If you've got some experience, it definitely helps in some of the conversations, being able to draw on my own experience of being a founder, and also having investors and in that relationship, I think is actually probably one of the most important things. There's more to do on lots of different topics around diversity and inclusion within venture, increasing operators is just one of them. And probably lower down the list than having more female investors at committee level and more underrepresented individuals across all venture really so it's a good skill to have but there's lots of different types of vcs and they all add something in their own way 
Does that give Portfolio Ventures a bit of an edge then? Do they have an operator like you that's been both sides of the fence? It's kind of interesting. Is like a lot of people think, oh, venture's just investing money. But you can also be an entrepreneur as a venture capitalist. So you know, I mentioned I started another fund and I just still felt like an entrepreneur. I was just launching a venture fund instead of a tech business. And with Portfolio Ventures, we're a small team of three. Will and Will founded the business. So they've got their own operator experience from doing that. They have to file annual accounts and deal with all sorts of things on the operator side from running that business. We just happen to be running a venture business. But yeah, I think I joined 18 or so months ago. And obviously, I bring that kind of tech founder experience, which I do think adds to what we offer. But equally, Will and Will have a lot of experience from running the company and they've been investing for longer than me which is something that I value a lot leaning on their experience and I know that track record in this space is the most important thing everyone's looking to return money to investors they've done that before so that's hugely important to the overall mix of what we offer as a team. What does the market look like at the moment from an insider's perspective and I say insider the person that's obviously signing the checks at the end of the day to help these early stage companies? Yeah, so there's some very exciting things happening. And there's also some macro impact that is no doubt affecting the industry. So recent studies show that valuations are down, which is probably a good thing There needed to be a bit of a reset. But they haven't completely crashed. I mean, founders still need money and they need sufficient runway in order to hit numbers for the next round. So as investors, we're not suffocating founders with small rounds. We're still giving them the right amount of capital. But just that top line pre-money is probably being squeezed a bit. And also, it's not about venture capitalists being particularly opportunistic or trying to get more equity. It's really about understanding what valuation you'll command at your next round and making sure that you have the right resources and the right valuation at this round to grow into that next valuation rather than then having to do a down round or recap or accept bad terms or whatever. So valuations have been squeezed a little bit. A lot of companies will have raised internal rounds in 2022. The runway that that provided them will now be coming to an end. So I think over the next six months in the second half of 2023, we will see some casualties of companies that come to the open market and either experience fairly significant down rounds or some may even not be able to raise at all which would be unfortunate but is always the case when there's a bit of a shakeout so I think the industry got quite good at insulating itself from the downturn by doing internal rounds but we'll see the shakeout of that later this year. But then there's also huge optimism around things like artificial intelligence, not necessarily to build completely new businesses with AI from the ground up that are AI first, but more so companies that have product market fit and have a business model and have a big market to go after and have clients, etc. implementing AI into their processes to improve efficiency, increase margin, make employees happier, make customers happier. I think that's a really exciting trend, which we've started to see a lot of our companies in our portfolio using AI in some way. But we recently did a panel to try and encourage more of them to do so. Some of them are seeing great impact from implementing AI to ultimately increase their margins, which is really promising. And is that bolting AI into existing products? 
or is that helping them with the delivery and the operational fulfillment of running these businesses? Yeah, so it's both. And we've been quite clear with our portfolio that they should only be putting AI into the customer facing product if it solves a real need. So not AI for the sake of AI, but where you can create a better experience, whether that's faster response times to support tickets or better ways of discovering items within your product or whatever it might be, then that's a huge positive if it can make your customer NPS score, which is net promoter score increase by making the experience better, then that's great. But it's also the internal tooling. It's marketing copy, it's ideation, it's product decision making, it's GitHub Copilot for your dev team, automated code test writing with GitHub Copilot. These are the types of tools that are readily available that we can see that some of our portfolio are using and getting great efficiencies from and others are maybe slightly slower off the mark. And that's no criticism. It just just hasn't been part of the culture to test these tools rigorously. So we want to try and encourage that where possible without distracting. It needs to try and save time and increase resources, not detract from time or resource. So when these businesses right now are being very careful about where they spend their money with the limited runway that they have, are they investing it in product enhancements like that? Or right now it's about riding this storm out. And does this storm have an end? Because we've seen some data that suggests that number of rounds, the number of investment deals are increasing. I don't know if that's a good sign or if that's the market doing its dead cat bounce. What's your view on that? Yeah, I think there's definitely some numbers to suggest that June, July 2022 was the bottom of the market for certain sectors. I think that there's still a lot to shake out. I think with the change in mortgage rates and inflation, there's so much that could <laughs> impact things on a kind of macro level going forward. So I'm not suggesting like we're at the bottom or there was a bottom or that things are going to get suddenly a lot easier. I think there's still a lot to play out. What I would say is that there is capital out there. The best companies will still get funded. It's not all doom and gloom. AI is creating a lot of new opportunities, but it has to be underpinned by fundamental good business and good business models and product market fit with clients. Yeah, it almost feels like AI are now table stakes for any business. And I think if you're looking for backing as an AI business that's creating these tools, then you're highly investable right now. But if you are a fintech or any other type of tech business that now has to start introducing this technology into your offering to serve the customer and to help on the operational front, you still need that backing. You still need those funds to do that. And I wonder how easy that is to come by. And will these companies die before that happens because they've just run out of cash? I'd say that any tech company with engineers worth their salary should be able to integrate AI fairly simply. It's more so how you do it and on what on, because it has to have an impact. It has to create more efficiencies ultimately and not detract. So it is about being focused. There is some need for experimentation, but if you can really solve problems, that's the most important thing. I think building AI businesses from the ground up, AI first companies is actually really hard. And I think we probably won't see as much success in that space as people are probably making out. I think a bit like cloud computing, every tech company in the world is built on cloud software from tech giants. I think 
every company in the world will use AI software from tech giants. I think it opens up a wealth of opportunity. And I think that making something 10% better with AI isn't going to be something that you can build a whole new business out of. I think it needs to be 10x better if you're going to be an AI company, AI first. So actually, I think the fintech that integrates AI is actually probably in a better place than the company coming completely cold to the market, hoping that their AI product is going to move a whole industry over to what they're offering versus what exists. Because we know that 10% better isn't enough to disrupt an incumbent. In my experience, a lot, certainly within tech companies, a lot of founders are engineer or product people by nature. Selling doesn't come easily to them. They're not comfortable with it. Some of them don't even like the idea of having to sell. Have you come across that with the companies you've backed? And what advice have you given the founders to help them get their head around that they need to do this in the early days? Yeah, so sometimes there will be founders that don't naturally see themselves as salespeople. I remember I went to a talk with Rob Fitz, who wrote The Mum Test, and he said, stop thinking of it as sales. Like sales has got maybe the wrong brand to it now. Think of it as customer development. So if you're good at product development, you should be good at customer development, which is looking at the data, understanding it, making sense of it, and then optimizing. And if you treat customers in a similar way, it's really about going and asking them questions getting the data, and then reacting to that. So the days of founders like melting the phones are gone. You know, we don't need that. What we need is in the early stages when you're a founder, you need to be speaking to customers. And that can be very genuine approaching saying, look, we're an early stage company in this space. We're trying to fix X problem. You're the sort of business that we're looking to work with, but we appreciate we're early and we probably don't have it all sorted yet. So we'd love to just understand more about what you're doing. And if you can give them a good enough reason to have that conversation, then you're going to learn a lot from it. So my biggest advice, if you're pre-product market fit, which, by the way, is a overused term and underdefined of what that actually means. But I think there was a famous saying from someone in Silicon Valley that said, if you're not sure if you have product market fit, you don't have it because when you got it, the wheels are coming off because you're moving so quickly. So if you're not feeling like everyone's trying to give you their business, then you still need to just be out there speaking to customers and learning and approaching it in a very humble way, in a very sort of like, we're still learning, we're still improving, and we want the product to get better and better. But there's a challenge when you've got enough momentum as a founder. Let's say you've got to about a million in revenue now, and it's time to start building that first sales team. What mistakes have you seen businesses make when they pass the baton from founder which quite honestly people are prepared to talk to founders because they're interesting people they're innovators people love having those conversations when you pass the baton to a salesperson say go replicate that early success it's a whole different game and what have you seen both the good and the bad at that transition point from founder-led sales some founders are very process driven other founders are not at all it's all in their head and they know what they're doing, but it's all in their head. I'd say that the biggest mistake is expecting a salesperson to join and build your process for you and make it all perfect and it work perfectly and hit sales targets and hire the next person for the team. It's far too much. What you're really expected to do as a founder is not just land the first few clients, but actually start to develop that process. And that doesn't mean that you have to do it on your own you can 
use a consultant or you can speak to other founders about what they do. But trying to build a process that you can put a salesperson into is going to be far more successful because if they start to deviate away from the process, you can then explain why they need to come back or why things aren't working. You can't improve what you're not measuring type thing. So if you don't have a process in place, I would recommend finding that process, like processing what you are already doing, defining it, defining the target customer, defining how you qualify leads, how do you find leads, all these types of things so that when someone comes in, they can go, 90% of this is amazing and I'm going to follow it. And then this 10%, I can actually add and make it even better. And then if they've got the right attitude as well, they'll go and hunt for you. But within the definitions of what you've said, this is how we do sales. What do you see as the first hire then? Because what you described there is someone who comes in and there's a process and a structure that they're able to follow and they can replicate that success. But when we think about the first sales hire, that's not the first sales hire, is it? What does that person look like? So I actually would say that the first sales hire should be attitude over experience. So I would rather have someone that is sort of like a just really hungry, but hasn't got bad habits, is just kind of happy to come in, listen to the founder, and then run with whatever they tell them to run with, rather than maybe someone like a head of sales, who's really experienced and is going to bring their own kind of noise to what sales is for that organization. So I think what a lot of founders do is they try and hire the head of sales to then hire the sales managers underneath and all the different teams underneath. I actually think you can almost go bottom up for the first hire. And then maybe if that's working, then you bring in the head of sales after that, because you're kind of like building a sales culture, you've got someone that's already delivering, you kind of understand a lot more from having someone follow your process. You've talked a couple of times about this journey that you've seen these companies that you're backing going through, drawing on advisors. And I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that, because the value of having access to experience Could you just talk a bit about where you've seen it work well? But equally, I'm interested in where it just hasn't worked when you bring kind of these external advisors in that cause more damage than perhaps good. So let's just delve a little bit more into the value that advisors bring early stage companies in your experience. Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is that advisory should be bought, not sold, really. It's like it's got to come from the founder. They've got to really know that they've got something they need help with. They've got to really know exactly what that is and exactly who the right person is to help with that because it needs to be highly focused and highly specific so that would be the first thing I'd say is like as founders be aware but then don't enter into these relationships lightly really make sure that there's a real problem or a real thing that you need support with and then go after someone who can help you with that specific thing and shorter term contracting, I just need help with this, be really clear, that's what you need. Don't expect too much kind of grunt work from an advisor, you really need them to point you in the right direction and give you the advice, you still need people on the team that can execute whatever that advice is. So whether that's yourself as a founder, or someone that you've brought in, make sure that there is resource internally to act upon the advice that's given yeah I think that's where it works really well I think where it doesn't work so well is where you like brush someone with 
they're going to be our growth advisor or they're going to be our product advisor. And they kind of have this person that's like sort of lingering in the shadows of the company that doesn't really do anything. You maybe have a monthly call with, they swoop in, they've got no context. You tell them all your problems. They then think you don't know what you're doing because you're only telling them your problems, not all the good stuff that you've actually done. And you get very mixed messages and everyone comes away from it feeling a bit disheartened, a bit low. And yeah, I just feel like it's a bit of an energy drain for everyone involved. So I'd always start with those like shorter term projects, like really focus on a need. If that then develops into something where they go, look, I helped you with your referral program. I can also help with your payments migration or how you handle tax codes or whatever it is that they also have expertise in. And maybe there's an ongoing relationship where I can help you that and it would be cheaper, but I'm kind of more involved. And then, you know, that's how I see those relationships developing into sort of more like retainer led models. What are the areas that you're seeing businesses needing advisors or using advisors more? I have seen success with sales advisors. So I'd say that, again, it comes a little bit back to that advice should be bought, not sold. So like a founder's got to want that. They've got to be open to it. They've got to sort of hold their hands up and say, I've taken the sales bit sort of as far as I can. And now I need the support to take it to the next level, to put this into a process, to make that first hire, to make that second hire. And I want to be able to lean on someone who can support me with that. So that's where I've seen it work quite well. I have also seen some product advisory work quite well, but I think too many times it's a retainer without context and doesn't always work particularly well. And then on the growth side, like marketing and paid marketing, there are some very good advisors out there for that that do really know what they're talking about. But they're often very expensive and in order to implement what they're advising you need a pretty solid marketing budget to go and spend and execute on whatever they're telling you to do so I think the timing of that one is really critical and I'd love to see more kind of growth advisors that have a model that isn't based on budget that could come in and support founders in the early stages thinking about growth hacking and product-led growth and things like that that isn't based on how much you've got to spend on Google this month. You touched on at the beginning of the conversation around the sales process and qualifying leads. Sounds like you're a big fan of Medic. What is it about that sales process you think needs more attention? I think it was just the context of how I saw it used, really, is we'd gone from a previous board meeting there's 1,200 companies in our pipeline to the next meeting. There's 21 companies in our pipeline. And the 1,000 plus was mind boggling. And it was like one of the least productive board meetings we ever had because it was just kind of like, this is just noise. And we don't know what's in the funnel, what's not, what's going to drop, what's not. And it's just like scattergun approach to then the next board meeting, just like laser focused. I think we even added a new qualifying criteria to it so we came up with our own word to help qualify companies and it just gave us a starting point which I think was really helpful to then build on and I think this comes back to what I was saying earlier about processes is as a founder put in processes 
but then find where you can add little bits and you can evolve it to your own business and you can make it really work for you. Because that means that next time you hire someone, they're not doing medic, they're doing medica or whatever it was that we came up with. And then if they can hit all of those criteria for a client, then you know it's qualified and they might spot an extra qualifying criteria that they notice that helped them say, yeah, this is the right business for us to work with. So it gives you a really strong starting point and it was smart. So what was that? Measurable, achievable. It was all those things that you, of goal setting. It's like, yeah, smart objectives. Yeah, smart yeah. objectives. It, it just was like, it was just the beginning of us sort of building that into the process and it just felt really good to have something that we could start with made sense and then build upon let's talk a little bit about driving awareness then and lead generation the lifeblood for any business is either a good flow of incoming leads or a very proactive sales team out there telling the market you have something that can solve their problem what strategies have you seen to be most effective in helping raise awareness and generating leads for the companies that you've backed yeah so a few ways i'd say that that there's another old sort of tech adage of do things that don't scale as well as trying to find things that scale so little meetups events so i've seen some founders do like a monthly coffee with six senior people in their industry and they're not even selling they're just saying hey i'm bringing along so and so and so and so we all work in the same space. Instead of us all doing one-on-ones, why don't we try and grab a coffee on three Tuesdays time at 9am? And just by hosting that little meetup, it's very low commitment for people. You can do it sort of 9am. So they'll have time to get back to the office for their 10am first call. They don't have to come in any earlier. It's just like really low commitment. But they're also, they're not just there to see you, which again, they might not agree to do, but they want to be in that little meeting with all those people so I've seen that work really well particularly at early stage when you're trying to build your network within the sector is like try and get six managing directors or six marketing directors or whoever they might be for a coffee and plan it fairly in advance treat it like you're putting on an event but the actual organization is light touch send reminders yeah all that sort of stuff I've seen that work quite well and then Referral is obviously massive, really important, and you can kind of process that. When is the best time to ask for the referral? What does it look like? Who do they need to refer us to? Be specific. Don't just say, can you intro us to one other company? Because they're not going to have the time or headspace to think about who that could be. You need to say, hey, I saw you were on a panel with so-and-so, at last year's X event, we haven't been able to find their email or whatever. Given that we work together, I was wondering if you'd be happy to make an introduction. Won't be offended if you say no, but blah, blah, blah. Like make it fairly casual, but it's also really, really targeted. I think that's, again, important. And then the third one would really be just like content marketing. I'm a huge believer in content marketing like you do Phil I do a podcast it's not always about how many downloads it gets it's about who's listening and being known for hosting that conversation and getting out there it's amazing for networking it's good content and it puts yourself at the center of the conversation so you've got to pick something that you 
enjoy doing that you can be consistent at that in the first two years, no one really pay attention to. But by the time you're year three, year four, year five, and you've done 200 episodes or whatever it might be, or 300 newsletters, people will go, you know what, I've read four of your newsletters over the last three years, that each of them was good. And I might not have read the other 296. But just for the fact that you've been doing that many, you're now here in my thought process when I'm thinking about this particular topic. That's absolutely critical. And there's no time to start like today. I wish I'd started my podcast years earlier. I didn't. I started in 2020. We've done over 150 episodes now. I absolutely love it. It's not always about how many people listen or how much we charge sponsorship for. It's really about everyone who comes on the show I get to meet and spend time with, have interesting conversations with. And so that's how I know I'll be consistent is that I get enough enjoyment from just doing it that all the other benefits are additive. So every business, every person should be thinking about what can they do that they can be consistent at, which is going to help elevate their brand into the conversation around the topic that they're focused on. Yeah, definitely. James, fascinating talking to you. I have a bit of a tradition here where I ask a question or two at the end, uh, really with a strong military theme. So if you hadn't picked up on the behind the startup lines idea is my experience of being in, in the Marines and bringing it into startup life and recognizing the similarities of just having to deal with very fluid markets, fluid environments has led me to sort of transpose that experience I think into working with startups and it's proved to be very very effective so if you don't mind I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you that you won't have had a chance to prepare for similar to waging a war scaling a startup is a lengthy endeavor so what's your long-term campaign strategy to keep momentum going in the businesses that you've been backing okay I think for the founders try and remain focused but keeping speed on product development is I think one of the biggest markers of success in early stage companies that move quickly on product and constantly make the experience better for their customers win over companies that even early have you know success but the product never changes so that would be the ongoing strategy I think for founders is to keep improving the product for us as investors our long-term strategy is to be pound for pound the most valuable investor in every deal we do. So we're usually not the largest investor in the round, but for the amount we do invest, we bring a lot of value. And that is not something that reaps extra returns for us in the current vintage. It's what leads to those founders referring their friends and their colleagues and their investors to come and raise money for us in funds six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So that's our little long-term strategy that we're working on is be pound for pound the most valuable investor in the deal. Last question. Winning battles often requires the ability to move quickly and strike decisively. How nimble is your fund in terms of decision-making and getting a deal done? We're very lucky. We're just three partners. We're all involved in every investment decision. But if we are required to, we can move very quickly. We try to crowdsource information from, obviously, the founders who provide data rooms and decks and things like that. But we also lean on our investor network, people who have invested in our funds, experts that we know. We try and do customer references. We do reference calls with 
the lead VC who's leading the round and other investors in the deal. And if push comes to shove, we can probably do all of that in 48 hours. Wow. It usually doesn't take 48 <laughs> hours. It usually, ta- it usually takes a few weeks. But if we really, really needed to, and there was a great lead VC who opened up their research and investment memo and conviction and thesis to us, and we could get access to their customers quickly, which has happened, we can do it very, very quickly. And I love that about our fund is that we can move quickly. Brilliant. Tell us a bit about the companies or the startups that you're interested in backing. What is Portfolio Ventures looking for? Yeah, so we're a UK fund and we predominantly invest from pre-seed to series A in fintech, insurtech and SaaS companies. However, we can invest beyond those sectors. And because we're a UK fund, we are looking for companies where they have an unfair advantage from being headquartered in the UK. So fintech and insurtech, historically, there are some reasons why the UK is strong in those sectors, access to capital, access to talent, regulatory reasons, historical reasons. But more broadly, if there's a business that you're building where it kind of could only be built from the UK, then we'd love to see it. And the process for getting in touch and and putting this in front of you and the team? Anyone can contact me on LinkedIn and my emails on my LinkedIn as well. So we're a super accessible fund. You don't need a warm intro. If you email us, you will receive a response. So yeah, jp at portfolio.ventures. But go to my LinkedIn, drop me a message and you'll find my email on there as well. James, thank you for such a free-flowing open conversation. I'm sure a lot of the founders listening to this will have learned a great deal. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Phil. I've really enjoyed it. What a great conversation. As an operator turned investor, James has given us unprecedented insight to scaling an early stage business from an investor's point of view. To learn more about building a successful startup from James, check out his podcast, Riding Unicorns. If you like what you heard today, please give this episode a five-star rating and be sure to tell your friends that we're here. It's been my pleasure to bring you this episode of Behind Startup Lines. Until next time, this is Phil Guest signing off. Over and out.